0: So, good morning. How's everybody doing? It's the awake crowd, right? The exciting crowd? Okay, good. We'll see how this goes. So, I've been, um, I'll be married eight years in, in March, which is just a crazy kind of thought, actually, to, to think about. And so, over eight years, there's this been a ton of stuff that I've learned along the way. And um, I know in the midst of the series, we've been talking about a lot of pretty heavy stuff this whole marriage series. I know there are probably some of you that are thinking, this guy's been married eight years. Like, what can he teach me about marriage, right? Now, before we get to that conclusion, let me just kinda of say there's been some skirmishes I've gone through. There's some, some some stuff that I've had to weather and some things I've had to figure out. Like for instance, the all-important question, how do you put up the Christmas tree at Christmas time? I got it. I let her do it. And then I just assist. You know, when to take the trash out, very important. How to load the dishwasher. All these kinds of things. I've, I've learned some of this stuff, so there's something I could probably say about these things. I've even learned the most important question, which is like, what not to get your wife for Christmas? You know, like a three-quart fryer. Too practical, I get it. I had some amends from women earlier in that one. Too practical. You've got to be better about it than that. But let's be honest. Um, I feel like sometimes, to listen to somebody who's been married for eight years and, and talk about marriage, it's like learning how to drive from a teenager, <laughs> You know, what do you know? You just haven't been in this that long, which is, which is true. But what i found in the midst of this series and people that I've interacted with and, and things that we've heard along this series, what I've found is it really has less to do with the, the quantity of years within your marriage that determines how good or successful your marriage is. It has more to do with the, quanti- the quality of years within your marriage. And so I know a lot of couples, young couples, that I can really learn from. As I watch them interact with one another, I see commitment and faithfulness—the way it's really supposed to be done. And I know a lot of people who have been married for a long, long time. That, to be honest, I don't want to learn from, because when it comes down to it, their, their marriage isn't healthy. And so, this morning, as we look into God's word, as we wrestle with some of these kinds of things, I just want—I want you to know that, you know, as a series, we believe that these things that God has given us, um, as as Scripture specifically, and how to live our lives within a marriage this is this is important important stuff i do believe it has less to do with the quantity of time put in and more of the quality of time that is put in and so in this series we've been saying that it's it's easy to fall in love but it's but but to stay in love is what messy it's difficult and probably anybody in the room would agree with me on this it requires it requires intentional effort and real attention to have a marriage that is healthy and that is thriving And I would like to say it this way, I mean, love, it it seems like a a simple thing in theory, but to actually execute it is really, really difficult. It's simple in theory, but to execute it's really, really difficult. So when I was a kid, I had a friend who knew how to juggle. And I remember watching him juggle, and if I was honest, when I watched him juggle, I thought, that's that's easy. It's just three balls, you just got to keep them in the air, you toss them around a little bit, keep them from hitting the ground, that's all it takes to juggle, right? So I'd watch him, and then I wanted to learn how to juggle, whoa. So when I wanted to learn how to juggle, it took a lot of artistry, a lot of effort. Please applaud me. <laughs> uh, I've been worried about it all morning. Juggling looks like a really, really easy thing, but to actually execute it, to actually do it, it's a really difficult thing to do. Like in theory, it seems simple, but, but in execution, it's hard. And growing up, I, I saw marriage as really the same kind of thing. Like I saw people that, that were married, and I thought, oh, that seems easy enough. I mean, you, you get married, and you get to live with the person that you love, right? And and you get to help pay the bills potentially you get to help clean the house that would be nice you help raise the children you get help in all these kinds of things you get to have sex I mean it sounds really awesome really simple really easy but what I've found in my life and you've probably found in your life too and if I would say this I I believe it'd be a great amen that has not been my experience and probably hasn't been yours either I mean marriage is tough marriage is hard marriage it gets messy. And so, before I got married, to be honest with you, I felt like I was going to be a gift to whoever I was going to marry. Why are you laughing? I mean, I, if I was honest, I was like, "Well, I've been doing this Christian thing for a while. And I know how to love people. You know, I've ser- I've worked in student ministry. Like, I, I get it. And so, to get married, just the same kind of thing, right? I just love people again. I love my wife. I'll I do it that same kind of way. And and I found out after about seventeen minutes that um, I was a mess. And all the things that I thought I had put together, all the places I thought everything was put together, the truth was I was a total mess and am still a mess. Ask my wife. And so what I found is that in, in having a good, good marriage, part of that is being able to recognize that, that you're not put together yourself. That's a tough pill to swallow. And you know how I know that? There are a lot of people who never do. Who never can come to that kind of conclusion. That listen, there's, it takes two to tango within a marriage. And potentially I've got some stuff that I need to work on. So, stuff I really need to go through. And it's much easier to kind of ignore the negative aspects of whatever I'm hap- happening in my life and to actually, than to actually change and actually grow and be transformed by marriage. What I'm finding within eight years is that our marriage, my marriage, is more about me becoming holy than it is about me being happy. My marriage is much more about me becoming like Christ than it is remaining content in how things are. This is difficult, this is messy. And like anything that is hard or difficult, messy, unpredictable, disappointing, angering, frustrating, whatever word you'd like to put in there, it's not for the faint of heart. Marriage is tough. You know, my wife and I, we're not like fighters. Like, we don't like get in a lot of arguments and fight a lot. Like, it's just not kind of like how we do. Um, but recently, we did have kind of our, our biggest disagreement around Christmas time. Because around Christmas time, my wife came to me and said, Hey, listen, I think we should get a king-size bed. And I said, I don't think we should. She said, well, I feel like if we had a king size bed, then when I get up in the morning, my body would feel feel more rested. I really wanted to say, well, I think if we got rid of our offspring, you'd probably have the same kind of experience too. They wouldn't come get in our bed at three o'clock in the morning or whatever. That wasn't an option. So she's like... Listen, I think we need a king size bed. And so we, we begin to have this discussion over a couple of weeks. And at first it was just kinda of innocent. It was like, hey, king size bed, I was like, hey, no. And then um we kept the discussion going and eventually I would kind of be subtle about it, be like, Hey, listen, I love you. I cook dinner. I don't think we need a king size it's too expensive. You know, like we gotta move stuff out then to bring this in. It just seems like a pain to me. And she's like, Oh, well, I think we should. And so it continue on for weeks and weeks. Now finally I decided that maybe I just had to be a little more forceful with my My thoughts here, my wife is really stubborn. I love her for it. So what I decided to do was like, listen, maybe I just need to put my my foot down. Like show some power, you know, some authority. So I'm like, listen, I don't want the king size bed. And she said, you listen. I want the king size bed. Okay, well, we'll, maybe tomorrow we'll we'll discuss this again. So sure enough, the next day, I bring it up again. And this time I'm a little more forceful. I'm like, listen, I want to be as clear as I possibly can right now. I do not want a king size bed. I'm fine with our queen. Things are fine. She's like, let me be clear. The king-size bed's coming in our house. (laughs) So this went on for a while. And so so eventually, you know, things kind of settled down. Everything was fine. I'm happy to announce that for the past few weeks, I've been sleeping nicely in a king-size bed. (laughs) So I have learned something along the way. And truth be told, this... In this whole discussion, this whole like, process of the king size bed, I, I found this reaction well up inside of me over the stress and the difficulty and the, the struggle of this thing that I would never really felt before <laughs> to the point where I was like, feeling I had to get really serious about this. I never had this kind of response to this kind of thing. We don't, we don't fight much. And I know there are probably some things in the room, people in the room who've had arguments over the same kind of dumb stuff, a bed, you know, or maybe it's a dog or it's a dishwasher or whatever. And there's probably some people in the room too who have arguments and disagreements and struggle over some things that are very, very serious and across the board. But what I have found is that whatever frustrations that come from this, however difficult it might become, we have a response that our body wants to make. And it's one of two things. Either we decide that we're going to fight or we decide we're going to choose flight. We're going to choose to kind of engage in what's going on and continue to fight for the relationship, to continue to fight for the marriage in the midst of whether big or small. Or we're going to say, you know what, this is too difficult. Instead, I'm just going to bail. I'm just going to leave. In almost every single situation that's a difficult one, this is the two choices that we have. And, and I'm, I'm going to make a prediction here. You, in this room, have come across this kind of situation before you've had to make a choice in this kind of thing how am i going to handle this situation am i going to fight because of the commitment that we made to one another even though i'm frustrated even though i don't want to do this cuz the truth is it's not going to be fun i'm not going to enjoy it i have to swallow my pride or am i going to be someone that says you know what this is too difficult it's too much to kind of bear and so because of that i'm just going to i'm going to bail i'm going to leave it's self preservation I believe that the very reason that we're doing this series is because we're seeing an epidemic within couples across our nation and certainly within our community where flight is the response that is chosen rather than to continue to fight for the relationship. We don't think that's how it should be. And culturally, this has kind of become the expectation. If you watch any movies, any media, any music that you listen to, this is kind of the message that's pushed on us. Listen, when things get tough, you just get out. If things aren't going the way you want them to, find someone else. If you've not found what you wanted in this marriage, then, then certainly in another marriage you would find it. And, and we're beginning to buy this. And for some of us, it doesn't come from music, movies, or media. It actually comes from our friends. And so you go you go spend time with your girls, and they start talking and like, listen, I'm gonna be honest with you. I didn't like him in the first place. And that's not helpful. Or, or you go watch the game with the guys, and they're like, listen, dude, I going to be honest with you, she's crazy. And too often, this is the message that, that is pushed on us. And for anybody who's on the fence about whether, whether this relationship is worth fighting for or whether it would be easier just to bail and find somebody else, too often, when this is the thing that is being pushed towards us, we just choose to raise the white flag and just give up. It's easier that way. I want to be very clear here this morning before we go any further, though. It, it, it takes two to tango within a relationship. I understand that. And for some in the room, perhaps you are putting out a lot of effort, and it really needs to become someone else on the other side who's willing to put the effort forward as well. But in the end, I believe that we have this epidemic, and the epidemic is simply that we are so quick to throw in the towel when it comes to a relationship to find someone else, to do something else. We talk to students all the time who seem to go from relationship to relationship to relationship, and we say to those students, listen, you're practicing divorce, You're learning what it's like to get involved with someone. And as soon as that person doesn't meet your needs anymore, you get rid of them and find somebody else. It's a dangerous pattern. And unfortunately, it's a pattern that happens often within the marriages that we see. Let me tell you something. Your marriage is worth fighting for. Your marriage is worth fighting for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you got married and committed to one another, you promised one another that you would stay committed to each other. In sickness and in health, prosperity and adversity. In all these different ways. Not only that, but for some of the marriages that are struggling, there are are offspring, children involved. And for them, it's important to keep fighting. This is how they know they're loved and valued and safe. But I believe most importantly, the reason your marriage is worth fighting for is because your marriage is about more than you think. Your marriage is actually about more than you think. The scriptures are full of marital language all throughout the scriptures, describing Jesus' relationship with his church, us. In fact, nearly 20 times in the New Testament alone, Jesus is referred to as a bridegroom and his church referred to as a bride. The writers use this marital language to kind of illustrate that your, your marriage, your relationship is an expression of the relationship between Jesus Christ and this group called the church. And within a culture that this was written to, who had a high regard for marriage, this was saying a lot. They were saying, listen, the way you love one another, you are expressing to the rest of the world what it looks like for Jesus to love his church. When people wonder what it's like, they can look to you and say, it looks like that. That's the kind of love. Now, within our culture, that oftentimes takes a lackadaisical approach to marriage, this can be a really difficult thing to understand. Our marriages... The relationship that we have between a finite woman and a finite man is expressing an eternal truth. Your marriage is more than you think. It's worth fighting for. Pastor and writer John Piper says it this way, The highest meaning and most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. That is why marriage exists. If you are married, that is why you are married. If you hope to be, that should be your dream. And so if you're a Christian couple in here this morning, I want to encourage you to keep fighting because you're an expression of the kind of love that Jesus has for his church. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake this morning. Now again, growing up, you would not be able to really pin me as, as much of a fighter either. I was not somebody that like, grew up and got like bloody noses on the, on the playground and then came home and had to explain everything to my mom or whatever. That just didn't happen. Like in fourth grade, I got in a, a fight with my best friend, Johnny Walls. It was mostly just like grabbing each other's hands at 4-H camp and spinning around, falling on the ground. And then in high school, Nick Cunningham, you all know Nick, Pastor Nick. We got in a couple scuffles, but I didn't really take it too far because clearly I would die. So I didn't really like push the envelope on that too much. But I did though, when I became a middle school youth pastor, I began to realize I had to learn how to, how to fight. Like how to, how to have a skirmish. Because when you're a middle school youth pastor, if you have a middle school boy, you might know what this is like. Because they hang on you at all times. They hit you with pillows. They shoot you with Nerf guns. They slap you in the neck. This is what it's like to be a middle school youth pastor. I'm recruiting really well right now, right now aren't I? <laughs> but you'll love it. So, to give you a little feel what this is like, last weekend alone in middle school, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, we had 120 sixth, seventh, and eighth graders all in a room over there. It was so much fun. You should come. And um, when we were together in that room, there's occasionally this thought that I have, and it's, it goes like this there's 120 of them. And there's one of me. And that's terrifying. Because again, when half of those are middle school boys who get a little rowdy, a little rambunctious, whether you're at Menchie's or in the youth room, whatever it might be, that's a difficult thing. So all of a sudden, Nick and I, when we were interns here doing middle school ministry, we decided both that we had to have a new approach to doing middle school ministry. And that was what we like to call shock and awe. So if a middle schooler hit us with a pillow, a wedgie had to ensue that was so over the top So ridiculous that every other middle school boy in the room would look and be like, I'm not doing anything to those guys. It was really for survival, but it became kind of this approach that you had to take to middle school ministry. As soon as someone jumped on your back, you had to hurt them so that no one else even thought about doing anything. Shock and awe. Here's the thing. In middle school ministry, we, we began to realize that we had to fight to win. There was no fighting just to make everybody calm down or be cool because eventually you'd be overrun by as many as there were. I think the same approach and the same attitude is the kind of attitude we have to have when it comes to our marriage. Too many of us were like, "Listen, I'm going to fight to make it to the end. You know, I'm going to fight just till the kids are out of the house. We're going to fight just to kind of get along. We're going to fight to survive. Instead, though, I think our attitude should be such. We're like, "Listen, we're going to fight to win. We're going to do whatever it takes to win, because here's the thing: we value our marriage. We are not playing around. This is not a joke. This thing is fragile. I believe the way that we fight to win, we get a great example from Jesus in the way that, that you fight to win. The way that you really make sure that things work out well. And Jesus tells us this. In fact, Paul writes about Jesus in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. We read it a little bit of earlier. Here's what Ephesians chapter 5 says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. I can feel the temperature rising in the room. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now first, there's been a lot of damage done using this passage right here when it comes to marriages and relationships. We've been told a lot of things about what it looks like for a husband and a wife to get along and to interact and to be within a married relationship. I want to be very clear, what's happening here, when Paul is writing this, the context of which this is being written, is very different from our context, because at this point in time in the ancient Near East, you have to understand that women, they were possessions. They had no rights at all, they had no say at all. And so when we read this, we gasp, because we can't imagine submitting to our husbands. But, to where this is written to, this was a massive leveling of the playing field between husband and wife. What Paul is saying here, culturally, is a huge step forward. For women within that culture. And don't forget what it says in verse 21. Verse 21 says this, therefore submit to one another in reverence for Christ. Before it even gets to verse 22, it says, listen, submit to one another. I think a lot of times when we think of the marriage, when we think of a husband and wife, we think of 50 50. Listen, you go 50%, then I'll do my part, and everything we find will meet in the middle somewhere, which always happens, right? 50 50. But what would happen if Jesus had that kind of attitude? Jesus, I'm going to go 50% and then you, you do your part too. This is not what is shown to us within scripture. This is not what Paul's about to explain to us. What he writes about is actually 100%, 100%. You give 100% and then I will give 100%. We we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As a Christian couple, your marriage should look different from the marriages around you. Out of reverence and allegiance to Jesus. The way you treat one another should look different from the world around you. This is important. We are Christians. We take our cues from Jesus, not the rest of the world. We submit to one another in mutual submission. Now there may be some marriages this morning that I believe are actually losing this fight because there's one side that refuses to cave to the other. You feel like to win is to just hold your ground and to fight until the other person loses. And so we feel like we're in this battle with the person that we're sleeping in the bed with or is sleeping on the couch in the other room. And we feel like to win is to actually defeat them. I've got news for you when this is our attitude, nobody wins, everyone loses when we think we just need to defeat the other person. In fact, Ephesians chapter 6, the very next chapter after this, Paul writes this, Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the evil spiritual forces all around us who would love to see your marriage fail, especially as a Christian. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Your battle is not against your husband. Your battle is not against your wife. The battle is against someone that wants to take your marriage out. And so what we have to realize is that our posture and our, and our, our internal guts towards one another have to, have to be something that you can't muster up on your own. This doesn't happen on your own will. Believe me, I've tried. And t- potentially you have too. When we try to do this on our own, it always fails. What we're talking about here, this kind of attitude is actually a spiritual exercise. This is something that you need help with. Because simply put, at our very core, we are selfish human beings. Always looking out for ourselves. That's always our initial reaction. So what we have to do is we have to learn from a selfless God the way you love people. And Paul describes it in chapter 5, immediately following the verses we just read, starting in verse 25. He says this, Husbands, just in case you thought you got off scot-free in the one we just read, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So the writer says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, which begs the question, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her, he died for her. He broke his body, he shed his blood to restore that relationship that we had lost with God. So, husbands, when when this is written here, this is, a, this is a major, major request. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Here's what I think the writer is getting at. To love your wife well, to love your husband well. The only way it takes place is through sacrifice. It's through sacrifice. Here's what I'm beginning to find in my marriage, that, that love is sacrifice. You, you don't win with power. It never works. The common thought of the day was that power looked like the sword. Power looked like Rome, the superpower of the day. So if you wanted to win, you had to eliminate the enemy at all costs. And our world is buying the same kind of lie. And unfortunately, our marriages were sipping the same Kool-Aid. But when Rome crucified a 33-year-old Jewish rabbi named Jesus, believing that they had won, what they found out is that power actually looks like the cross. Power actually looks like sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. If you want to win, win, it takes humility. If you want to win, give up your life. I firmly believe that love is sacrifice when the two of you disagree about how to handle your finances. Honey. Love is sacrifice when you go on vacation with your kids and things are not going right. Love is sacrifice when someone violates the promises that you made to one another when you said, I do. Love is sacrifice when your in-laws move in. Love is sacrifice when someone gets diagnosed with a painful disease. This kind of love is sacrificial. It's going to cost you something to love anyone. Truly love them, it's going to cost you something. It's sacrificial in nature. But when we fight, when we stay in the fight, when we want to win, this is how we do it. We make every decision based upon what is, the, what is the best, what is the most encouraging, what is the most beneficial thing for my spouse, not for me. What is the right thing to do for my spouse, not for me? See, some people here this morning, you might be in this argument stalemate. I've been there before. Luckily, not this morning. You might be in an argument stalemate, and both of you, you've entrenched yourselves... And you're lobbing grenades over at each other. But the question becomes this. What within me needs to die so that this relationship can continue on? What needs to be eliminated? What needs to be taken out so that this, this marriage, can continue on? Love must become a verb. It can't be something we just talk about. It has to be something that we actually do. And so some of you here this morning, you're on the verge of, of, of bailing. Of being done. Fight for your marriage. Some of you, you're just beginning to, to ask these kinds of really deep questions. Like, have I done the wrong thing? Have I chosen the wrong? Fight for your marriage. Maybe it's time that you, you need to apologize. Buy the flowers. Let her lead in this. You step up and lead. Encourage her to go on the girls' night. Encourage him to go on the guys' night. Night, Do these things, the things that you don't want to do sacrifice for the marriage, fight for the marriage. I'm not saying that I'm good at this, because I'm not at all. You can ask my wife. I'm learning this. And the reason I struggle with this is because I'm convicted by this. And I fully believe this. I'm convinced that the only way that our marriages begin... The only way our marriages survive, the only way they thrive, and the only way that we, they will be restored is actually through sacrifice, the way that Jesus Christ showed us. When I got married to Jenna and said I do to Jenna, I said no to every other woman around me, period. When I said yes to this relationship, I said no to everyone else. There's a, a couple in my family who's gone through some really difficult things. We've seen breaks of trust. But I've also seen incredible sacrifice that has restored that marriage. And not only that marriage, but has actually impacted other marriages around them to help restore as well. For some of you, you're, you're doing certain things that your wife has been telling you for years that she can't stand. But you keep doing it. It's time to change. Why? Some of us in the room this morning, like, you've been doing this thing, and you know it drives your husband crazy, but you want to do this thing. But he's been telling you, listen, that, that hurts me, that's, that's painful for me, and we just keep doing it. Sacrifice means we stop those things for a different outcome, to see what could possibly happen. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, we see this incredible passage of scripture that That kind of gives a little insight into the, the, the sacrifice that Jesus makes on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, here's what it says. For the joy set before him, talking about Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for the joy set before him. He realized that to take on this pain, to take on this struggle, to take on this shame and this discomfort meant that something great would take place. I'm convinced that if that would not have been the case, Jesus never would have done this. Too painful, too much. But he chose to break his body and to shed his blood because he knew what it would mean for you and for me to restore our relationship to God. Once again, the way this happens is through sacrifice. My prayer for us this morning and for myself is that we would be able to see the joy set before us. What is possible within our marriage. If we too are willing to take on all these things. To actually sacrifice. to, To choose sacrifice over entitlement. Humility over pride. Forgiveness over revenge. What could happen? What kind of joy could be set before you? You see, our relationship with God was one on the cross. And your marriage will be won the same exact kind of way. And so you have Jesus just hours before he's going to be crucified, arrested, beaten, hung on the cross and die. He's having a meal with his friends. And during the meal, he takes a loaf of bread and he holds it up in the air and he breaks it. And he says to them, this bread, this is, this is like my body. It's going to be broken for you. I'm going to break my body for you. Then he takes a glass of wine, he holds it up, he says, See this? This wine is like my blood. It's going to be spilt for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he describes to them what's going to take place, the sacrificial nature of what's going to take place over the next few hours, to describe to them the kind of love that he has for them. And as we approach our marriages going forward, I think this is the kind of attitude that we have to have as well. It's sacrificial. It's broken body. It's shed blood. It's giving so that things can continue, so that love can continue to work. And so this morning, we have an opportunity to take part in communion and remember the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. My prayer is, as we remember the sacrifice made for us, that we in turn would sacrifice for others as well, specifically those who we live with, specifically those who we love. As Pastor Nick comes forward and those who are going to help administer communion this morning come forward, want to pray for us. So if you would, would you bow with me and let us pray. Lord God, we come to you this morning and we want to recognize that we have not loved you well. And in turn, God, we've not loved one another well. And for that, God, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask, Father, that as we look at the example of Jesus, as we see what he's done for us on the cross and sacrificing his body and and shedding his blood, Father, we pray that would be the attitude that we would carry with us as we spend time with those that we love. So, Father, challenge us today to be willing to give up, to be willing to sacrifice. We thank you for your example, and we thank you for your love for us, God. May it guide us. May we call our cues from the cross.